Move, hang, entrance, door. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I encountered my ways. I recounted my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen a way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Yes. Okay, let's see here. Today is the 5th of October. Toothpicks and oranges. The Tower of London, sitting forbiddingly on the Thames, is a small village within impregnable walls. It has served as a palace, a fortress, and more ominously, a prison. Here, a young Catholic named John Gerard suffered for his faith during the reign of Protestant Queen Elizabeth I. He was a Jesuit priest, educated on the continent, who began covertly performing priestly work in England at age 18, moving from place to place one step ahead of the law. He was eventually captured and taken to the Clank, a prison so infamous that its name lives to this day. For three years he was kept there, sometimes chained, often attempting to escape. Then he was moved to the Tower. One of the buildings there, the White Tower, contains a deep vault without windows or outer doors. There in the eerie glow of flickering torches, Gerard was hung by his hands for hours day after day. When he fainted, he was revived and the torture reapplied. His arms swelled monstrously, his whole body throbbed, his bones screamed, and his hands became so damaged he couldn't even feed himself. The torture was finally suspended for a while. The young priest did finger exercises, and within three weeks he could again feed himself. Soon he asked for oranges and toothpicks. The toothpicks became pens, orange juice became ink, visible only when heated. Messages flew back and forth, a rope, a, rope, a boat, and outside helpers were recruited. On October 5, 1597, Gerard climbed through a hole to the roof of the Cradle Tower, threw a rope over the side, and slid down it, wincing as it mutilated his hands. Friends whisked him to a hiding place outside London. He was soon back at his clandestine priestly work, always a mere step from recapture. Finally, it became untenable for him to stay in England, and he sadly slipped out of the country in the retinue of the Spanish and Dutch ambassadors. He labored in Rome until July 27, 1637, when he passed away at age 73. He is known today as one of the elite handful of people who outwitted the Tower of London. I'm not exactly sure what the point of that is. It didn't say anything about, you know, uh, he's a Catholic, and I'm not sure if they're uh, defending Catholicism or what, but whatever. Anyway, surrender your heart to God, turn to him in prayer, and give up your sins, even those you do in secret. Then you won't be ashamed. You will be confident and fearless. Your troubles will go away like water beneath a bridge. Anyway, um, uh, I, I'm not saying that what they did to him was correct. That's not my point there. But, you know, if they're defending Catholicism, I disagree with Catholicism, like 999.9927%. But whatever. Um, uh, 
there's not I talked about this in a sermon recently, or maybe it's coming up in a sermon anyway. There's nothing to no, it was in a sermon we've already done. The opening comments. There's nothing to defend holy war in Christianity. You know, it, all over the world we see people killing each other for their faith, and even within Christianity, people are conducting this type of holy war. And there's nothing to do that. We have no mandate to uh, apparently John Calvin even had somebody executed. You know, uh, there's nothing to justify that in Scripture as far as Christians against other people that either think they're Christians or are apostate or whatever. You just let them go do their own thing. But it seems to be that people like to, uh, uh, you know, take out their frustrations and their own faith to extremes that are not intended in the Bible. Now, uh, I would say that we as Christians, if we face suffering, should be willing to face that suffering. And, uh, you know, I don't know how I would endure under suffering. I have no idea. Can't even imagine because I've never faced it, but I don't like pain. I think most people don't. And, uh, uh, you know, we all just have to face that on our own someday if it happens. But for right now, you know, that's, you know, talking about that before we go into prayer, um, I was asked by a friend about Luke 12, 9, my commentary on Luke. And I said, well, I haven't done a commentary yet. I, I'm doing Acts, and after that, then we're going to do the Gospels, and we'll be done with the New Testament. But um, Luke 12, 9 is, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before your father. And she says, what about that? And so I gave her a very quick answer is that um, uh, first is the context. Jesus is speaking to Israel under the law. He's speaking to the Jewish believers uh, in that context. Uh, secondly, I, I think I gave her three points, but one of them, only another one's coming to mind right now. Maybe I have it. Maybe I have it right here. Um, give me a second. I might still have it on my iPad if I do, and I can read that to you. Because uh, it bears right with what we're talking about right now. If you deny me, I will deny you before my father. Okay, does anybody know what the problem with that is? Um, if you don't, that's okay. I will take you and give you an answer to what the problem of that is in just a second. Let me go to here, and then I got to look for, okay, found it. All right, and then here's my answer. Um, uh, Jesus was speaking to Israel under the law. The church was not yet an entity and was not the subject of his address. Secondly, no person who has come to Christ through faith has denied him. Okay, they were saved. It's a past tense. It's a done deal according to what Paul writes, and they're sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee, Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. If you were sealed with the Spirit and God takes it back, then the guarantee was no good. It wasn't a good guarantee. So that doesn't apply either. Thirdly, Paul addressed denial of Jesus in 2 Timothy. I don't know if you remember that, but people stop with verse 12 and claim that it means that it can apply to believers. He turns around and completely dispels that in verse 2, 13. So let me take you to there, uh, chapter 2, and then we're just going to go down to uh, 12 and 13 really quickly, because it has to do with what this guy was facing uh, and people's question. In case you're ever, uh, you know, told, well, you can lose your salvation if you deny Jesus, and he said it himself. First is the context. Second is what he says. This is 2 Timothy 2, 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And I go into great detail. If you want to read the commentary, go read, uh, go to the Superior Word website, go to writings and then PDF commentaries in 2 Timothy, go down to 2. You just push a, a link and it takes you right down to chapter 2 and then scroll to chapter uh, verse 13 and read that. We have not denied him, as I just said a moment ago. 
None of us have denied him if we've called on Jesus. So that doesn't apply. And 2.13 says, if we are faithless, meaning that we've come to Christ and we don't perform in Christ, right? Even if we deny him as, you know, we're hanging in a prison, we say, I just give up, okay? If we are faithless, what does it say? He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If you are a believer, you are what? It's called in Christ. You are now a part of Christ's body. He cannot deny himself. You have accepted him no matter what happens in your walk with the Lord, including if that guy was saved, then he is in the Lord. If he had denied the Lord under duress, the Lord's not going to hold that against him. He's already believed in him. He is in Christ. So you have to take everything, one, in its context, two, what is your position in Christ, and three, what does Paul say about exactly that issue in verse 12 and then in verse 13. You can't stop in verse 12 and say, well, see, that's what Paul, he's not. Verse 13 says very clearly, if you deny him, uh, he will deny you. But if you are faithless, speaking now to believers, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's the whole point of why he adds that in there is that you haven't denied Christ. So don't ever let anybody pull that over your eyes, that wool, and say, see, you know, you've got to remain faithful even in prison, even at the uh, uh, whatever. You're saved. You're going out at the rapture. That's going to happen, and nothing is going to change that. That is not going to change. So there you go with that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. What a precious word it is. We thank you for it. We thank you for how wonderful it is to know that we have the assurance of salvation even when we're faithless. And how many of us are faithless on any given day, Lord? We just do things we shouldn't. We think things we shouldn't. Our attitudes are awkward or awry, and yet you have already saved us because of simple faith in Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you for the sealing of the Spirit, which tells us that we are sealed for the day of redemption, and that will not be taken away because you are the God that does not make mistakes. Thank you for that surety we possess, and we pray for this class that it will be handled properly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's see here. We are in, oh, we're starting chapter two today. This is the chapter where it gives the timeline of the rapture, or the, the end times events. Not the rapture itself, but end times events. And once again, before we start reading this, I will lay the groundwork for it, is that um, uh, if you take Jesus' words, I'm saying this now before we get into this, because uh, it, you cannot mix apples and oranges. Either Jesus' words in Matthew 24, etc., are speaking to the church, or they are not. That's, that's all there is to it. If they are not, and they are not, he is speaking to Israel, still under the law. The church is not yet an entity, okay? He's speaking to them about issues that will pertain to them. If you take that apple and you mix it with Paul's oranges, you will have, one, a contradiction in your end times theology, and two, you will not be able to resolve what Paul says very clearly. If you want to know the timing of the events for the Gentile-led church, which is who Paul is writing to, you have to stick with Paul's writings. You can't go back to Jesus' words under the law. You can't go uh, to 
Revelation 4 verse 2 through Revelation 19 verse 10 and take stuff out of there because that is mirroring what is going on in Matthew 24. It is directed to the Jews after the rapture of the church. If you disagree with that, that is fine. You can be as wrong as you want about this issue, but you are incorrect. There's no point in emailing me with this because you have taken an apple and an orange and you've mixed it together and you've made a salad, okay? That's not what we're doing here. Paul is writing a sequence of events to the church that he is the one that is forming. As a matter of fact, I typed that just a couple hours ago. Let me read you what I typed just a couple hours ago. Um, I did a second commentary today just because I wanted to get a little bit ahead. We're in Acts 21. I think it was verse 19. Might have been, it was 20, I think. Anyway, um, Acts 21 and... Um, uh, yeah, 19. When he agreed to them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Was, it Peter, was Peter the apostle to the Gentiles? Were any of the other apostles apostles to the Gentiles? Not one of them. Only Peter got this commission. He was the one that went out among the Gentiles and told Paul. the people what to do. Paul. Uh, Paul. Yeah, that's right. Peter was not. Paul was. He was the one that went out among the Gentiles and established doctrine for the church. And they're going to argue in the rest of uh, Acts 21 about, um, uh, you know, the Jews observing the law. And I'll explain why they were doing that. Okay, even after the coming of Christ, believing Jews were still observing the law. Can anybody give me a reason why they would do that? Uh, family, friends. Uh, Cultural. Mm -hmm. Okay. Temple still standing. They're obligated, what was that? Tradition. Tradition, culture, and necessity. The t temple was standing, and if they did not, they would be apostate, and they would be executed, okay? Once the temple stopped uh, existing, once it was destroyed, they could not. It's not that, well, partial, they could not observe the law of Moses, because the law of Moses is a codified whole. It's not, well, this is the moral and this is the ceremonial law. You have to observe this and not this. It is one law. It is one combined law. And if you cannot observe the requirements of the law at the temple every year, which were mandatory, then you cannot observe the law. So obviously something new has taken place in redemptive history after the time of punishment. And who said that that was going to happen? Who said that, that there would be a time when the temple would cease to exist and he gave the time frame for it. Who said that? Gosh. Um. I'll give you a hint. Jesus. He said it specifically in Luke. The sign of Jonah. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the preaching of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is not Jesus in the tomb. Three days and three nights. That is not the sign. Luke makes it explicit. Matthew refers to it. Luke makes it explicit. What was the sign of Jonah? Preaching. Preaching. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jesus did exactly what it does all the way through the Old Testament, like eight or nine examples of it. A day for a year. Forty years after Christ's work was complete, the temple was destroyed. Okay? He said it to him explicitly. When that happened, that ended. It is done. It is over. The coming temple is going to happen. I support the people of Israel in the land of Israel, but I do not support the building of a temple. I do not support the uh, observance of these feasts in the temple because that's not what God wants for them. God wants them to come to Jesus. 
He wants them to come to Jesus. All this nonsense we hear every year about the red heifer, they've been doing that now since 1999, every single year, milking the people along. Red heifer's coming, got one in Israel now, go back to 1999, you'll see articles on this. They're milking the people, getting money for no reason at all. People keep sending them money. That has nothing to do with what God wants for Israel. He wants them to finally acknowledge his son, okay? So, Paul is the one that wrote the timeline the schedule for the end times events for the church and without understanding that with mixing apples and oranges your theology is incorrect it will never be correct ever with what you're thinking because you have taken information that does not belong to you you've just like when people say the church has replaced israel they have co-opted benefits that belong to israel and said they belong to us well, if they've co-opted those things, then guess what? All of the punishments that Jesus said belong to us as well. All of us, oh no, that part of it's over. No, if you are Israel, then you are obligated to the punishments that were given to Israel. There, there's just a terrible disconnect in people's thinking. They have to get through that, and if they do, they will understand what is going on in redemptive history. We are the church, we are not Israel, but we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. The wealth, it's, you know, a commonwealth. There's a couple commonwealths in America still. Massachusetts is one. There's three or four states that are commonwealths. That's where you participate in the benefits. Even if you don't, you, you're in the state, you participate in those benefits. Whatever. Go read how a commonwealth works. We are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We are not Israel. That is the, the case. So now that we have that established, we can go ahead and we can start with chapter 2. It shouldn't take very long. As a matter of fact, if we start right now, we should be able to finish it tonight. Um, I yes. Would think, yes. Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm laughing about exist. this. Too. Oh, so it's all last week. Okay. No, that's, it's not. It doesn't, doesn't even exist. exist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't write that. That's not my handwriting. So um, anyway, uh, that's okay. This is incorrect, and we'll get that corrected. Um, uh, yeah. But if we started at 12 and nobody said, okay. Uh, you know, I was looking for it for like 10 minutes. Okay. Well, it's a different translation. It is. It's, that's, it's in a different translation. There's a 213 and another translation. If, the one that you use at the church down the road. So if you want to go to 213 or 113, you just go on down to that church and they'll have 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 13. But this church, we stop at 12. Anyway, she didn't know. She was just, you know, somebody said, well, we stopped at 12 and it went to 13. So anyway, um, yeah. So we're in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse one. Yes. Yes. Okay, so you go ahead first. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. I went too far. Yeah, that's okay. Um, it, it's, it's kind of not the same format as mine, so you kind of had to go over it. But this one, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his coming, and our gathering together to him. We ask you. And that's where it stops right there. Okay, so this is dealing with the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. Paul now moves from his opening comments to the main portion of instruction in the epistle. His words concern future events. That's obvious from what he just said. They're future events. The coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. Okay, which will explain his thoughts of his first letter to them. Uh, before I go on, we were talking about this before class, and we still have a disagreement on it. That's not my intent. What I said last week about 
uh, it, just speculating whether our bodies are left behind or whether our bodies go, uh, that's kind of irrelevant. Um, uh, it, it doesn't really affect anything, but I had never been asked that question before. And so I, and I'd never even thought about it. You know, you just think of things. And um, one of the obvious things that I mentioned, and other people brought it up again this week, uh, which I corrected them, is Enoch and Elijah. Anybody know the problem with that? Enoch and Elijah were not raptured. They did not get raptured. Does everybody understand that? They went to heaven. They did not get raptured. They're going to come back, and they're going to die. Okay? So we need to remember that. That's one of the things. You can't use that as an argument. Another one is that Jesus resurrected in the same body and ascended in the same body. Once again, you can, that is apples and oranges. Jesus is the Lord. He had to resurrect in his physical body to prove that he had conquered death. Okay. It also says in 1 John that when uh, we see him, we shall be like him, but we don't know what he looks like now. So the point isn't to argue over whether our bodies are left here and we get a new body or not. The point is that we're not going to be in heaven with the bodies that we have now. I would think, and this is just Charlie Garrett having thought it through more, looked at it a little more this past week, not much, but I would think that these bodies are going to stay right here because the word is very clear. They will be exchanged. It doesn't say anything about changed, which is what an unfortunate English translation. And it also doesn't say transformed, which somebody else uh, said that word metamorpho, oh, transform like it. it. It doesn't say that. That's not the word that's used there. It says exchanged. And as I said, it would be a great, great reason for, um, I don't know what's going on there. Somebody's emailing. Is this working here? Okay. No, I don't have to worry about it. It would be a great, great, don't get it. It's okay. It's probably Jody pestering me about something um, or <laughs> Don. Uh, yeah, it could be. And that's fun that they do that. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to pick it up because then I'll lose my train of thought. But um, uh, it, it would be to me a much more evident reason for the great delusion that bodies are left behind than bodies being gone. If bodies are gone, you've got to come up with all kinds of explanations that people may or may not believe. A lot of bodies are just here and they are just laying around. You can explain that in various ways, you know, plagues and this and that or what. You know, at the um, uh, battle of um, for Jerusalem, when uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came down and uh, they were attacking Jerusalem and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and Isaiah came and uh, said that he's not going to come here, arrow's not going to come in here. What what was the result in the morning? 185,000 bodies laying there. Nobody said, oh, you know, that must have been a rapture. They had a reason to dismiss it. The Lord said it was going to happen and it happened, okay? So, whatever. Um, uh, take it for what you want. I'm not here to argue over that, but it's just something that I think is uh, it has merit on the surface, whereas the arguments that I've heard since then have had no merit on the surface. So, it, you know, I, I just enjoy the thought of that. But either way, this is an end times event that Paul is now speaking of, whether our bodies are here, whether they go halfway up and then they get changed or whatever. Um, and as Jim and I were talking about, I think I mentioned this last week and it kind of I, I don't know if I went into detail on it, but if a body dies, like somebody dies yesterday and the body is laying in the morgue, is Jesus going to take that body and then put him back in it and then bring him up and then exchange it, right? Probably not. And then if you take that logically back for the past 2,000 years, there were people that were eaten by sharks 
or vaporized in Hiroshima. He's not going to go get that body, give it to him, and then change it. Okay, so I would think it's much more, more likely that whatever we have will be exchanged immediately, immediately, and we will be with the Lord. Well, so, the in the twinkling of an eye. So it doesn't really matter in the end, but just thinking it through, uh, because somebody proposed it to me, and looking at the very word that explains the event, exchange, that's what I would go with. But I'm not here to argue with people over it. Anyway, Paul now uh, moves from his opening comments to the main portion of instruction in the epistle. His words concern future events, which will further explain his thoughts of his first letter to them. Okay, now why did he do this? He explains it right in there. Don't you remember when I told you these things? They, obviously, he had told them other people had come in, confused their minds, told them things that weren't correct, and Paul now has to re-explain it. But it's good because by doing this, by those people either not paying attention or not believing Paul the first time or whatever, we now have a definitive timeline for what is going to happen in the end times, which we would not have had before. The Lord obviously knew that was going to happen, and that is why that this is included in the Bible. He says, don't want you to be ignorant. Dr. McGee says they were ignorant. That, this is the reason he was talking That's about. right. He doesn't want to be ignorant because they were ignorant. Yeah. He's, I don't want you to be. Don't be anymore. This is what's coming. Okay. Um, in chapter 1 of this letter to Thessalonians, he spoke of judgment upon unbelievers and of the glorification of the saints as well. But there is an order in which things happen, and there are set times by God for them to come about. Paul would give some details of these things now. And so he begins with now brethren. Once again, he is giving a set order. He's not taking anything from Jesus' words. He's not taking anything from anywhere else. He is giving us what he knows under inspiration of the Spirit. This is Paul. We want to stick with this framework. And if we don't stick with this framework, we're going to have a wrong analysis of what is being said. The words are to believers and they are friendly and warm. Those who are included in the fellowship are all to read and feel encouraged by them. With this in mind, he then begins his thoughts with concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's it. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an issue which he has already addressed in his first letter, especially in chapter four of it. Therefore, his words are to be taken along with what he said there. Without getting too far ahead now, it is evident from his coming words that the people were making false claims about the events of 1 Thessalonians 4, and these statements were troubling the fellowship. Paul wants them, and because he wrote this in the epistle, which is now in the Bible, he wants us to know the proper sequence of events. Paul is giving the sequence of events. Nobody else is giving this. This is Paul giving them, which will occur in and around the Lord's coming and our gathering his words and our gathering together to him. This is specifically referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. So we'll read that right now just so we have the, uh, the words for us. It says right here, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, the Lord said that this was going to happen to Paul and he is giving us this word, that we who are alive, that means the people like you and me that are alive right now and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We're not going to go before them. 
They're going, he's giving them comfort about their dead. That's what he's talking about. We're not going to precede them, okay? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, okay? Now, it doesn't say, and I, this is just something that I'm going to throw in here just as an argument to support what I've been talking about. It doesn't say that the dead in Christ will rise first and be reunited to their bodies. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything. All it says is that they will rise first. Now, you can use because the uh, it's already been demonstrated in the Old Testament that bodies that have, or I'm sorry, people that have no bodies are still alive. Their soul remains. The soul continues even when the body is dead. It's an unnatural state that Paul calls being naked, okay? And we long to be clothed with our better body is what he's talking about in the, his letters to the Corinthians. But as a validation of that, in two, uh, yes, 1 Samuel 28, we have Samuel being called up by the witch at Endor. And I think the Lord put that in there for more than one reason, but one of the reasons was to let us know that these people have not ceased to exist. They're not annihilated waiting for a resurrection where they're going to be reanimated and suddenly aware again. They, they are alive. And he was called up from, a, we'll call it a state of sleep because he's, you could tell he was comfortable where he was. All right. Um, whatever happens to them. And, you know, some of the things in Ezekiel and other places where it says you will go down to the pit and these people will be waiting for you. You know, these, these bad kings like Tyre and all these kings that he's addressing. That's probably more metaphor than anything else. But regardless, these people, everybody dies and they go to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Okay, we can assume from what Jesus says that there's different compartments. You've got a good one and a bad one. The good one is for the people that will be raised in the resurrection and the bad one is are for those who will be raised at the final judgment. That's just speculation on my part, but I think you can infer that. So these people are either in a good place or in a bad place, but they are they are still beings. They're not just annihilated, okay? So these people that are in Christ are asleep in Christ. Paul makes that explicit. They are asleep in Christ, whatever, however you want to uh, look at that right now, they are asleep in Christ and they will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Okay, now what would be the point, once again, I've been thinking about this for the past week now, what would be the point of bringing this body up and then converting it after we're up? What would be the point of that? It doesn't make any sense. If we are going to be exchanged and they're going to get a new body when they're going up, they're not getting the old body they had, why would he give them something different than us? He's raising the soul. He's not raising the body, okay? And our soul is what animates us. We need something new to be in an incorruptible state because this corruption cannot inherit incorruption. That's just me thinking about the body itself. But these are the verses that Paul is referring to right now in um, 2 Thessalonians 2 from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 ver uh, chapter 4. So um, uh, the words Paul uses translated as gathering is found only here in Hebrews 10.35 in regards to Christians assembling together for worship and instruction. In this case, it must be referring to all who are in Christ, both the dead and the living. We're all going to be gathered together. 
all of us. There won't be any exceptions. And as it says right there in uh, uh, Timothy that we talked about uh, a minute ago, it, if you are faithless, he remains faithful. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if you do something incredibly stupid over the next 24 hours, which I hope you don't do, I hope that you'll apply the word to your life and not do something incredibly stupid, but if you do, you're not going to lose your salvation. You will be going up, okay? Um, you know, the thing is that we're in the stream of time, and God is outside of time. And uh, he is going to rapture you today, but he's not going to rapture you tomorrow because you did this thing. And then he'll rapture you the next day because you made it right. You made your salvation right. But the next day after that, you do it again, and so you're not getting raptured. You see the logic of loss of salvation? We look at things from our own human perspective. God doesn't do that. Everything is immediate before God. When he seals you with the Spirit, it's because you are going at the rapture, not because you have to work for your salvation and be the one to give yourself the grace that you had lost at the beginning. That's not grace at all. That is you working for what you, what he failed to do. That's, that's what that is, okay? That is not what the Bible describes. Jesus Christ did the work, and it is done if you believe it, okay? So, once again, I feel very bad for people that believe that you can lose your salvation because they are R-O-N-G. They are wrong. Okay, um, gathering uh, both the dead and the living. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, those words are being further explained now in 2 Thessalonians 2. Therefore, it is certainly referring to the time of the rapture at the Lord's coming for his church. What Paul is speaking about right now is no doubt speaking about the rapture. Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. The dead and the living are going together. He's going to gather us just as the church is gathered at one moment. Okay. It is based on this event that the words of this verse finish with these words, we ask you. Unfortunately, we have to go in the next verse to find out what we ask you is, but he's going to be clear about it. He's going to petition them to pay attention to what he and his associates have to say so that they will not be misguided by false claims like uh, mid-trib rapture or post-wrath rapture or pre-wrath rapture or amillennialism or uh, you know post-tribulation. Any of those events are not true. They are false dealings with the rapture. The words are meant for uh, the church as a whole. And so believers today can pick up their Bible and have the same assurances that those in Thessalonica had, believe it or not, 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. We have exactly the same assurance that they do. All of them are dead. Many of our family, many of our loved ones are dead. We have the same assurance that they had. Nothing has changed because in God's mind, everything happens immediately and it happens without any thought process. It is just simply him. It is his idea. Okay, uh, when I say that immediately and intuitively is the way that we want to word that, is that God does not think in a sequence as we do. And there's different ways. You can think sequentially. You can think dicursively. Dicursive means it's just one thought going to another thought. You're, not, you're randomly thinking. Okay, Hedico's got a black bandana on. That church is green. I wish that person would stop picking his nose. I mean, I'm sitting up here and all these thoughts, believe it or not, while I'm giving a sermon are coming into my head. I just, I see these things. I was kidding about the nose picking. I'm just trying to make you laugh. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, you, you have dicursive thinking. Uh, sequential thinking, or um, what's the word? Syllogistic thinking is also sequential thinking. A syllogism is that is black, 
It's got a frame. It looks like it's shaped for a human, human, therefore it is a chair. I'm making deductions in my mind. God doesn't do either of those type of things. He doesn't think dicursively. He does not think syllogistically. God knows everything. And so when he says that this is going to happen, it's not like he had to think the process through. We are reading the words that express what he has decided from the foundation of the world and before. I mean, literally, everything that ever has happened or ever will happen, God knows, okay? So Paul is writing these things, and when he says that this applies to you believers in Thessalonica alive right now, to God, they're alive right now. We are alive and they're dead, but he knew that we would be alive because we're alive right now in the presence of God. All of this is in God's mind. So don't feel like it's impossible for God to do this. I'll give you an example. When I, I was just really starting to read the Bible in uh, early 2001, and in September of 2001, I'm going into my store, and my friend at the store down the road comes running out to me, and he says, a plane just flew into the Twin Towers. He says, you gotta go, it's live on TV, every channel. So I went in, I turned on the TV, and I'm watching it. And all of a sudden, another plane goes into another tower. And we're watching this for a while, and all of a sudden, all these buildings come down. And I'm thinking, how are you gonna sort this out? You know, just trying in my mind to asking God, how are you gonna do this? You got thousands of bodies that are completely crushed. There's, they're, they're completely crushed. How are you going to sort this out? And I thought, what a stupid thought. You know, because my mind can't grasp what God knows. And so it's no problem for him to sort out. Those people's bodies are done. If there's a Christian in there, he's not getting that body back. There's nothing left of it. He will be getting a new body. God has sorted it out. Thing. He knew that that would happen. And just multiply that times like a war where millions of people are getting exterminated. God's got it figured out. Don't let those things worry you, okay? Life application. What is the sequence of events that surround the rapture? How can we know if someone is making stuff up out of their head? Stay tuned for the exciting details. Paul will give us words that will keep us from being distracted by people who are either uneducated in scripture or who purposely twist end times events. Now, how do we know that people purposely twist end times events? Because he's writing that people that were affected by people twisting end times events. He had told them, and now he has to correct them. Yes. Like a week ago. Yeah. Yeah, a week ago we were told that we were going to be out of here. People just say things and they're not based in any reality and then we have to go on from there. We don't want to do that, okay? Keep us from being distracted by people who are either uneducated in scripture or who purposely twist end times events for their own perverse purposes. Yep. Taking Paul's words in context, we can avoid being misled by them. I was looking uh, through YouTube, just scanning through, looking at various videos to see maybe I wanted to listen to some songs or something. And I've, I've heard every song that I'm, you know, I want to hear something new. And, you know, Jars of Clay, the Flood song is so nice. And then uh, another one came up, um, what's it, John Hurt, Mississippi John Hurt. And he does all, by and by, just great music he does. But anyway, I'm flipping through it. And then I came to one video of a guy that I have no respect for. He, he's very popular. I'm not going to give his name. Uh, but I, I just have no respect for his theology at all. And he came out with a video recently, within the past couple days, about uh, the Day of Atonement. 
And I, I already know his ideas about these kind of things because I've read some of his stuff and seen it before, and it's always wrong. It's always wrong, but it's sensational. He has 617,000 views. I mean, he's making a lot of money off that many views. I don't know what it is, but it's no small amount. Plus, he writes books, and he's got billions of dollars coming in from books and all that. And yet, everything he says has nothing to do with this, this word, except... Better not say anymore. I just, I, I just don't appreciate that type of handling of scripture. It, it, it's not responsible, and it doesn't matter how rich you are if you're not teaching the word of God properly, or at least trying to. It's futile in the end. There's no, there's, there's nothing worth uh, what you're doing. It, it will all be swept away. You know, we look at the world and we have to live in this world. We have to have money. We have to have transportation and we have to have a roof over our heads. These are the necessities for the human being in this world. But at the same time, it, there's no need to go beyond. As Paul said, with food and clothing, we will be content. I mean, that's what we need. Okay, these things, the car today gets us the food and clothing. So it's kind of a necessity, but it's not something that is a bare necessity that we need to survive in the presence of the Lord. All right, if we don't need a car and we can walk right next, I did that for a while. I worked at the hotel right across the road. Um, this is when I came back from Malaysia. I didn't need a car. Remember, I used to go over there, I'd just walk across the road and I worked there for, a, I don't know, maybe a year restoring all the buildings and painting everything. And, uh, uh, you know, whatever. I, but there are things that we think are necessary that really aren't. And uh, a car may be necessary, but it may not be. So whatever. Um, Two, two. Two, two. Brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us. Okay. Uh, saying. Saying. Okay. <laughs> yeah, now you're. This has already come. Yep, yep. Okay. That, so that is in that verse for you. That, okay, that good. ends it right there. Okay. All right. Uh, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ, and you said what? The day of the Lord. Okay, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord had come. Uh, yours says day of the Lord, this one says day of Christ. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is Christ the Lord? Yes. Okay, that's important because people will use that as a divider in their, their theology, that the uh, wrath of the Lamb is the second half of the tribulation, and they have to make up these things. They have to make these things up because they're using Matthew in their end times theology. And so they have to make Matthew match Revelation, which it does because it's speaking about Israel in the tribulation period. So they take this and they divide it up. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. So, I, but you have to make things up if you are going to misapply these verses. So we're talking about the gathering together of that. Okay, correctly understanding Paul's words of this verse, this verse, what he just read and what I just read are essential forming an end times doctrine that is sound and in accord with what will actually play, take place. Okay, If you get this verse wrong, you're going to be wrong on everything else. No doubt about it. So pay heed as we follow along with the words he gives. First he says to those in Thessalonica and thus us, we are not to be, his words, we are not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. This is based on what he said in verse 1 about the rapture. We're going to be gathered to him. Don't be troubled about that. He's asking them to be sound in their doctrine. And thus we are not to be led astray in our minds. 
Their hope will remain steadfast and their faith will not be weakened. If they just hold fast to what he is telling them, they're not going to have to worry about this. Like, I've got to go through the tribulation period and so I need to stand worthy before the Son of Man. Okay? Or I need to not take the mark of the beast or I'm going to lose my salvation. Because I know people personally that believe this. They believe that they must persevere. Their salvation is up to them, not up to Jesus. And I don't care how many times I try to convince them that that is incorrect. They've got it in their heads because this is what they were taught originally. And they must persevere. They must earn their salvation. That's not grace. That has nothing to do with the word G-R-A-C-E, zero. The idea of being shaken, Paul, his word, comes from a Greek word that concerns the tossing or the swelling of the sea. They were to be firm and fixed as if on dry land, not tossed about like a little boat on a raging sea. The apostles with Jesus could tell you all about that. They were scared out of their minds until Jesus said, calm, be still. And then they were okay with that, all right? They have set an example for us how scary that is, okay? But Paul is telling us not to be like that, not to be soon shaken. Don't be like somebody that's on a little boat out on the sea being tossed around. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. I brought it up a while ago with the last book that we used to read, is that the Moravians were on their way to America to make a new home, okay? And who was on that boat with the Moravians? John and Charles Wesley. And the boat was being very, very heavily pummeled. And the Wesleys were scared out of their minds because they had no hope of salvation in Christ. They were going to be missionaries in Georgia and they didn't know the Lord as Savior. So the Moravians, what are they doing? They're up on the deck praising the Lord, thanking the Lord, almost having a party. And what John Wesley said, Charlie Garrett, paraphrase, whatever they got, I want. That was their object lesson to him, not to be soon shaken in mind. When you have the hope of Jesus and you have the surety of your salvation, not being led astray by false teachers of the end times events, you don't need to worry. You do not need to worry. And that is what Paul is trying to tell you. You are okay in Christ. You don't need to worry about anything affecting your salvation or you being left behind because that's you know the day of christ has come he's going to say that you don't need to worry about those things you are in christ he's got you don't be shaken okay such a claim could be by spirit paul's words this would be a supposed prophetic utterance by someone in a christian setting setting it would be a claim to divine revelation note this is Charlie Garrett's note to you. Today we have the word of God. It's written. We have the timeline. We have all we need. We do not need, nor will we receive, such a word of prophetic utterance. If you think you're getting prophetic utterances by turning on the TV and watching somebody claiming stuff, fine. You're not. But you can think that all you want. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. We have the word. The timeline is given. The prophecies have been given. Everything we need to know about Jesus Christ is available. We live now by faith. That's it. We live by faith and not by sight. Hearing comes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes? I am really confused. Okay, so if you have the mark of the beast, you can still go to heaven? No, we're not going to be here for that. Okay. We're out of here. That's what Paul's speaking about, the timeline. Uh, 
we don't have to face the mark of beast. I'm saying that there are people I know that are Christians right now that believe they're going to have to go through the tribulation period and earn their salvation. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Those who are not Christian and they get the mark, does that mean that they will not? They will not be saved. It says that explicitly. They had not taken the mark of the beast. So it implicitly means if you haven't taken the mark of the beast and you are raised, that if you have taken the mark of the beast, you won't be raised. Okay. So, uh, yep, absolutely. Um, So, uh, we do not need nor will we receive a word of prophetic utterance. That's not something that we're going to get despite 10 billion claims on YouTube today alone. You've got people there sitting there just raking in the money from people because they they claim that they are a channel to the divine. And that's not just Christians. That's all that's, I mean, Buddhists do this and Hindus do it and Muslims do it. They all have these videos they're putting out claiming this and that and one thing and another. Not one of them is true. Not one of those people is true. This is a world filled with people that are profiting off of goofy. Anyway, any such uh, claim of such prophecy is to be rejected and the supposed recipient is to be disregarded. I wasn't nice here as a lunatic. Next, Paul says, by word or by letter. So first we have by spirit, now we have as by word or by letter. The word would be a false claim that someone had an oral message from Paul or another apostle. This isn't divine inspiration. This is saying, Paul told us. What Paul is saying, I'm telling you. And you'll know that. What does he do when he signs his letters? Big, very distinct writing. He signed his letters. They knew it was from him. Any other word that you get is not from me that will contradict this. So don't worry about that. That's the point of the word here. It could be from Paul or another apostle. They don't know what they're talking about. Especially if they said, well, John said this or James said this or Andrew said that. They wouldn't. Why? Because they all agree. Well, not only do they all agree, but somebody could say, well, I got this letter from James. Why would it not be the case? Because it was Paul's territory. It's Paul's territory. Very good. Gentile-led church. It's Paul's territory. This doesn't mean that Jews aren't included in the Gentile-led church. I know a Jew that's saved right now. I hope. Anyway, um, uh, it means that they are a part of something that is led by the Gentiles. That's all that means, okay? Jews and Gentiles alike, we're all one in Christ, etc., etc. But anyway, the exactly right. Very good. You get an extra point for that. Uh, you get a plus. Yes, okay. Um, uh, it, it, it's Paul's territory. It's like when you uh, go to the, the, we were talking about this in Prophecy Update two weeks ago. Uh, you go to the pharmacist and the pharmacist says, I'm not going to fill this prescription because I disagree with this. That's not his lane. His lane is to fill what the doctor has given. That's all his lane is. Don't get into somebody else's territory. Paul is the one that gave us the territory that he's writing about. Anybody else that supposedly says something, it's not their right to do so. So Paul is where we get this information, okay? Jesus has ordained Paul to do this. So when he says something in Matthew 24, it can't be what is being referred to because he ordained Paul many years later to do this. Paul revealed the rapture. He revealed the end times events. He gives us the sequence. If people just think this through, it would take care of all of this bad doctrine about end times events. But it is not sensational. And because it's not sensational, a lot of people just don't care. They don't care. Okay, they want sensation. 
Um, somebody sent me something today about, uh, they sent a commentary that, you know, she sends me a lot of stuff every day, just lots. And I can't watch all the videos because she's got a lot of time and I don't. But she sent me a commentary about um, some things that were going on. It was citing the Book of Enoch and it was saying how trustworthy it is. And then it cites Estras. And I went back to her and I said, I disagree with this entire commentary. Enoch is not a part of scripture. Not only that, it is what is known as the pseudepigrapha. It's a part of a body of writing known as the pseudepigrapha. Pseudo, false, pigrapha, or grapha, writings, false writings. They're false writings that were made up by Jews in the past. They were never kept with scripture. When they were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were in a different library on different uh, these are on parchment, these are on, uh, what do you call it, um, animal skins, parchment, whatever. Everything was separated. They didn't mingle these, okay? And she said, nobody's ever told me this. I've been reading this stuff and nobody ever told me. But sensation sells. And you want sensation, go read the book of Enoch. I, it's sensational, all right. But it's not scripture and it contradicts with scripture. And it adds in things that have nothing to do with scripture. So why would you read that and form your end times events out of it? It doesn't make any sense, but people do that because it's very sensational. It's before Christ, but I don't know when. Okay. I, I don't know. But like I said, it's a pseudepigraphal book. It was never, ever considered canon, ever by the Jewish people. The Council of Yamina, which they uh, wrote down their canon of scripture, wasn't in there. Okay. Uh, people will say, well, Jude refers to it, Enoch, you know, it's got a, a thing from there doesn't make any difference. I could cite Abraham Lincoln and it could be true, but it doesn't mean that it's inspired by God. Just because something is true does not mean that it is inspired. And so we don't want to make that mistake because if you make that mistake, guess what? Paul cites the Greek prophets, I mean the Greek poets, Euripides and uh, uh, several others in Acts. He does it in the book of Titus. He cites these Greek poets and these Greek philosophers. Now, if you take that logic with Enoch, we have to consider Euripides inspired. See the logic? There is none. There's no logic in that. Paul is citing a truth. He's not, you know, saying that this is an inspired truth by this person. It just is true in the context of scripture. And so I'm going to tell you from that perspective a lesson now. And so he does at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, etc. So, um, and he cites two or three others. I don't remember their names right now. Usually it's right on the top of my head. But he cites these, these uh, Greek philosophers. He says, this is the truth. Now let me explain how you can apply that to your life with the coming of the Messiah. And that's what he does. Okay. What's interesting about that is that the Greeks all knew about the Greek poets because they were sure. Greek. So who was... Was were they referring to when uh, the Book of Enoch was uh, is was it that populous or that that Enoch? Was, I'm sure it was just like you know like we read Edgar Allan Poe to this day, and I know people that cite Shakespeare all the time. Well, you know that Enoch is out there. You know some of the the writings about it, and so he just takes a line from there and he says, "See, this is the truth. The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints." Nothing untrue about that. And people say that that came from Enoch. Well, it may not have been from Enoch at all. It may have been something that was said by Enoch, but it's also said, you know, among Christians. It's just the truth. So it doesn't matter. Enoch is not canon. It doesn't belong in the canon, and we shouldn't be applying it as a part of Scripture. Okay? That's just how it is. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, Paul says, by word, I'm reading that. What Paul will now write is to be considered doctrine. 
any word brought to their ears or ours which claims to be apostolic in nature that contradicts what Paul will write is to be rejected. Okay, and that goes along with, we have people that claim that the book of, um, what are these, they're called uh, the Gospel of Thomas, they're, they're light, later writings, and there's a, whole, there's a word for them that describes them, a body of literature, uh, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of um, the Annunciation, Annunciation of Mary. And anyway, they've, they've got a term that defines all these later Christian writings that are not scripture, but they claim to be scripture. That would be something that Paul would be writing about. Anyway, um, th that's not important, it just came to my mind. Um, so, those are to be rejected. And then Paul uses, he's gone from by spirit and then by word, and then he goes to by letter. That's the same claim, a claim that a particular writing was from Paul or another apostle. As he says, as if from us. Somebody claims that James talked to him about something and it doesn't match what Paul says, it's not true. Well, if they have a supposed letter, like, you know, the, the book of Enoch, and it doesn't match what Paul says, then it, it's not to be held on to, okay? If a supposed letter or writing is received, which contradicts what Paul will now say, then it should be tossed into the garbage can, soaked with gas, and lit on fire. Be careful not to burn down your house in the process, okay? With this thought of the importance of what he will now say out of the way, he finishes the verse with, here it comes, as though the day of Christ had come, or the day of the Lord. Okay, you can argue that all day long. Which, which manuscript is the closer one? Christ is the Lord. Just remember that. The focus is here. The focus of what he is now saying, what he's going to say, the focus of all of this is on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is on the day of Christ. Okay, if you find a different focus in 2 Thessalonians 2, which one of my friends up in Ohio did, okay, I gave my... Uh, about once every year and a half or so, I give a prophecy update. Instead of doing the prophecy update, I do the timing of the rapture, just to remind people. And somebody emailed him and said, Charlie Garrett says. And so he came out and he went to his friend that supposedly speaks Greek, who I don't trust at all. The guy believes that Jesus was created in Mary's womb and all kinds of crazy stuff. But regardless, he went to his friend and his friend um, gave him, he said, well, he's wrong and here's the analysis why. Guess what he didn't do? He didn't use the verse that I was talking about. He used a completely different verse. And so my friend is up there talking about something that has nothing to do with what I said. Zero. But people, they don't understand what's going on. And so now it sounds like he's a professional. He knows what he's talking about. Wasn't it all what I was referring to? Right here. The day of Christ. Paul sets the parameter here in verse 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. The day of Christ. That is the focus of what Paul is speaking of. Okay, so with this thought of the importance of what he will now say out of the way, he finishes the verse with, as though the day of Christ had come. It's on the day of Christ. This is the main thought of Paul's words of this section. Everybody see that? I mean, read it yourself. Go home and read all of it. This is the main thought. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him is being set in relation in relation to the day of Christ, not the other way around. You don't start with verse one and say, this is what he's speaking about. He's saying that this, because this, because of this, in other words, this is what sets the parameter. This is because of it. Okay, you get this right, and then you'll know that what they're saying about this is incorrect. The day of Christ is the focus of 2 Thessalonians chapter two, 
this sequence of events, okay? So, if one does not properly follow this thought, which is the sequence which Paul is giving us, then there will be confusion in end times theology. When is the rapture? When is the Antichrist revealed? These are things that have to be taken in connection with what is now said by Paul. Otherwise, an incorrect analysis of the timing of these events is inevitable. Inevitable. And if you throw in Jesus, it's going to be even more so to the point, I'm talking about Matthew 24, to the point where your end times theology makes zero sense, except in your own mind. It makes zero sense in relation to scripture. This is why Paul has specifically started with the rapture and then said it in relation to the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the anchor of what he is speaking about. What is the day of Christ then? That's the important thing that we now need to determine because he said it, the day of Christ has come. Okay, and the rapture is in relation to that. What is the day of Christ? They both have the same meaning, day of the Lord and day of Christ. They have the same meaning. Christ is the Lord. Like I said, because people don't want to accept Paul's timing, which is very clear in this chapter, they will say Christ and Lord it's Lord and not Christ, and therefore it's a pre-wrath rapture. In other words, you have to go through the first half of the tribulation period, okay? If you want to believe that, that's fine, but the Bible doesn't teach that, okay? And that comes from you clinging to Matthew 24 in your theology. That's where that comes from, okay? So, what is the day of Christ then? They both have the same meaning, day of the Lord and day of Christ. Christ is the Lord. This is not speaking of the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. This is speaking of the seven years of tribulation that are coming upon the world, okay? If you disagree with that, that's fine. But I am, of Charlie Garrett's mind, I am convinced that it is speaking of the seven years of tribulation. And Revelation bears that out perfectly, okay? But once again, Paul is the one setting the timeline, not anybody else. She very wisely noted that. This will become evident by what he says in verses 3 and 7. These seven years are what are spoken of in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. The details of these seven years that Daniel speaks of belonging to who? Jews. To the Jews under the law. That is who he's speaking of. These seven years are given in numerous places in the Old Testament. And they are described in greater detail in Revelation 4, 2 through 19, 10. This is what Paul is referring to in understanding that this is what Paul is using as his baseline for the coming prophetic events. It will then allow the reader to correctly follow the timeline of Paul's coming words. Because we brought up Daniel 9, I've got to take you there just so you know what I'm talking about. Because Burke's answer was correct. I don't know how he got that correct, but he did. So, I'm going to read you just to verify that what Burke just said is true. Seventy weeks are determined for the church. No. Your people. Who is Daniel? He's a Jew. What dispensation was he living? The law. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. He's obviously speaking about Rome, right? No. No. He's speaking about Jerusalem. Jewish people, Jerusalem. 70 weeks, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, three bad things, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, three good things. 
know therefore and understand. They're given seven years to do those things. A 77th, I'm sorry, um, they're given 70 weeks, 77s or 70 years of se 70 of seven years, 70 uh, weeks. weeks of uh, years. That's right, okay, I wanna make sure I said that right because I often don't do that. There's 70 periods of seven years. They are given this to do what he just said. That's their, their what he says is gonna happen. Okay, know and therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's seven and 62 is 37? Oh, 69, thank you. Okay, so 69 weeks. Uh, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. After the 62 weeks, which means there's what? One more week because he gave him 70 weeks. There's one more week. There's seven more years. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So at some point after the 69 weeks have ended, the seven and the 62 is 69. After those have ended sometime, could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be 40 years. He's not giving them that information. He's simply telling them that at that time, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He'll die for the sins of the people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, it's either Jesus or the Antichrist. It's not anybody else. Okay, if you want to believe in praetorism, you'll say, that's Jesus, okay? If you want to believe in dispensationalism, properly handling the Bible, then you will say, that's the Antichrist. One, he's the nearest antecedent, and two, Jesus did not sign a seven-year covenant with anybody. His is an eternal covenant, okay? But in the middle of the week, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. There it is, one week, seven years. In the middle of the week... He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even till the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, a lot of information there. Not going to get into it, but there's seven years left. That is the reference that Paul is using right now. He's not talking about three and a half years mid-trib or uh, you know before that, which is post uh, post uh, pre-wrath, pre-wrath, I'm sorry. Not speaking about any of that kind of stuff. He's speaking about the seven years, the day of Christ, okay? That's when God pours out his judgment on the world. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, seven years, Revelation uh, nine, uh, 4, 2 through 19, 10. This is what Paul is referring to in understanding that this is what Paul is using as his baseline right there uh, for the coming prophetic events. It will then allow the reader to correctly follow the timeline of Paul's coming words, the day of Christ, seven years. That is what Paul is referring to. Life application, do you believe in a rapture of the church? If, you, if so, do you accept a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture? What is the basis for your choice? If one follows what the Bible says in context, the answer to these questions are given. Set aside your presupposition and follow Paul's thoughts. Don't mix anything else in of this chapter as they come. In doing so, you will see how the timeline is properly revealed. Now, somebody also sent me something this past week that talked about uh, who would be raptured. And um, uh, one of the analysis was that there, there's a billion Christians on the earth. And so um, that's going to be a lot of people that are gone. And uh, the analysis, the return analysis was no. And we talked about this a little while ago. No, that's not correct. That there are only a very small portion of Bible-believing Christians 
on the Earth. So it's going to be a very small rapture. Anybody? That's totally incorrect. That's completely incorrect. Okay? Being a Bible-believing Christian does not mean that you won't be or will be raptured. That has nothing to do with it. Believing in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is what will allow you to be raptured or not. There's no difference if you are a Bible-believing Christian or not. If you believe the gospel, you will be raptured. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Acts chapter 10, Julius. Uh, not Julius. What's his name? Um, what's that? Cornelius. Thank you. Uh, uh, Cornelius was listening. He heard the gospel. He'd never read a page of scripture in his life. He wasn't a Bible-believing Christian. He heard the gospel and he was saved. The Holy Spirit came down on them and they were sealed. It was done. Okay, There are people all over this world that hear the gospel on Saturday morning because somebody goes down to the projects and talks to them. They don't even know what the Bible is. They have no idea. And even if they did, they have no idea what it says about creation or about any of that stuff. Okay, They heard the gospel and they accepted the gospel. Guess what? They're going. They may never go to church again. They may forget. God won't forget that they believe the gospel. Being a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what will have you go to heaven. Nothing else. You want to be a Bible-believing Christian? To me, that is the greatest thing on the planet. That's why I'm in this pulpit every Sunday. It's because I want people to read their Bible and to grow in their knowledge of Christ and be willing to go out and talk to other people about Jesus. But being a Bible-believing Christian has nothing to do with being raptured. Okay? Please don't make that fundamental error. Don't do that. Uh, you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then you get to know the Bible. And like I said, there are people in Papua New Guinea that will never have a copy of the Bible. They have very little knowledge of what it teaches, very little or none. And that's the same with 99% of Christianity over the past 2,000 years. They believe the gospel, they are saved. So I just want to make sure that that's understood. If there are people on this planet that don't know the Bible, or they don't believe it because they've never gotten a copy of it. You know, and here's Charlie Garrett. When I first really came to Christ, I didn't believe in creation. I believed in evolution. Does that exclude me from being saved and raptured? Not at all. I have called on Jesus Christ. Now what I have to do is read this book and start believing it and start accepting it. But I wasn't a Bible-believing Christian in the sense that I didn't believe in creation. I believed in evolution. That's what I was taught. That's what I accepted. That has nothing to do with Charlie Garrett's salvation or being raptured. That much. Okay? So be very careful how you word things to people because it's important. We don't want people to get a false sense of our position in Christ or their position in Christ. But we do want them to mature in Christ, and so that's why we can start teaching them about creation. That's why I love Gen is Genesis history and uh, oh, yeah. answers in Genesis on YouTube. A new video will come up once in a while. I watched the one uh, a week ago um, from uh, uh, Answers in Genesis, and it was about the bee. Did I talk about this last no, week? No, it's pretty cool. It was it was marvelous. It was marvelous. Just he talked about the bee as a proof and evidence of God's creation. It was marvelous. It just go into answers in Genesis, and a couple people sent it to me, but I didn't watch it when they sent it to me. I waited later and watched it uh, while she was cooking. But it's you know maybe 15 minutes long or something. And the guy he's from Canada, and he just sits down, and he talks about it, and he tells you about the bee. That is just marvelous. 
the wisdom. A bee's brain is absolutely teeny, and yet it can do things that we are totally, completely incapable of doing to this day as all of the people on the world gathered together. Our cumulative knowledge cannot do what the bee can do with a brain that is so small that you wouldn't even see it if you cut open its head. Now think about that. All of the knowledge that we have on this planet cannot do what a bee can do. It's very well worth watching if you just want to feel uplifted in the goodness of God. I sent you a video of that. I took a picture of it and said, I'm watching. Did you watch it? Okay, shame on you. It was very good. Anyway. Um, just, yeah, no, just go to YouTube. Well, go to YouTube, Answers in Genesis, and then go to their videos, and it'll be like the first one that comes up. It's probably the newest or the second or third. I mean, I don't know how many they put out a week or if they do it once a month, but it just came up, and it really was marvelous. It's so marvelous to see the wisdom of God in something this big flying around, pollinating plants, able to land, and they explain how a bee can land the way it does. It's marvelous what God did with creating a bee, a bee. Anyway, let's go on. We uh, two, three. We got time for one more. We're not going to finish this chapter today. I apologize. No, I thought we'd just push through it, but anyway. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Until that day. Okay, go ahead. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Okay. That day will not come. The day of Christ will not come until. All right. But there is something to be qualified in here, and um, I, I will, uh, we'll talk about it. The opening clause of this verse, let no one deceive you by any means, is based on what was said in the previous verse. He told them that they were not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. At that early day in church history, there were deceivers who were making crazy stuff up out of their own heads and passing it off as prophecies from the Lord. Paul is showing those at Thessalonica, and thus us, that not only the instructions of the true apostles were to be regarded as authoritative, I'm sorry, that only the instruction of the true apostles were to be regarded as authoritative. Only the apostles. Now, do we have any apostles today? then we don't have any more information coming in. Even at that early time, people were making stuff up, okay? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the Word of God or people saying stuff on YouTube? Or, you know, at the church you attend, and he's saying stuff in the pulpit. Are you going to believe him if it doesn't, if it's not an analysis from here, analysis from here? Okay, um, uh, now that the apostolic age is over, our only source for divine revelation is the Word of God. I understand that people disagree with that, and that is fine. I don't hate people that do. I don't argue with them if they do. They're just wrong. In, in Charlie Garrett's mind, you are wrong if you believe you are getting revelation from God from somebody else because there's no need for it, okay? Any supposed word from the Lord or any supposed divine instruction apart from the Bible is to be wholly rejected. You can't tell who's telling the truth and who isn't, and therefore, it's best to just stick with Scripture. Okay, we've been going through this for 2,000 years now, and not one thing that one person has said outside of Scripture has lasted. Not one of it has been proven correct. Not one. Well, okay. The last chapter of Revelation. That's right. That's right. Don't add. These people have received the Word of God. Let it go. Okay. 
The words of warning concerning being deceived are not unique to this verse. Rather, Paul warns of such things in other letters as well. And yet, instead of reading the Bible and accepting what it clearly says, people fawn over deceivers all the time. If you don't believe that, go out to Utah. There's millions of them now. They fawn over a guy that was a deceiver. Okay? And this is just one denomination that cropped up at that time in history. Uh, Ellen G. White was there. Joseph Smith was there. Charles Taz Russell was there. They've all got millions of followers now. And they were all deceivers. But these people still cling to what they say 150 years later instead of checking with Scripture. Okay? Uh, and they are out there by the bucketful. Ooh, I have a word from the Lord. Reject this nonsense. Read your Bible and be sound in your doctrine. Paul's next words have a thought inserted by them in them by the translators. Now, this is what I wanted you to pay attention to. It says here, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. If you look at it in the New King James Version, because they always italicize any words that are not in the original, okay? Now, their translation may be wrong, but if their translation is correct and they have italicized words, that means we have inserted those believing that this is the intent of Paul's words because they're very short in the Greek, okay? The Greek simply reads, because if not shall have come the apostasy. That's kind of hard for us to understand, but they insert words so that you will understand the intent of the Greek because the Greek is, unless you read Greek, it doesn't make as much sense, okay? Um, however, the words which were inserted by the translators, this is me believing them, are rightly supplied. In other words, somebody could say, well, that doesn't belong in there, and, you know, he actually means this. I don't agree with any such analysis. They were correct in their analysis. That day will not come, are rightly supplied. Why? Because he's referring to the previous verse, okay? It is speaking not of the rapture of verse 1, but of the day of Christ. As I said, you have to get the anchor right. If you get the anchor wrong, then you will have a mis, uh, you know, a misunderstanding of what is being presented. The day of Christ or the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, day of Christ, same. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Okay, so the words are rightly supplied. Um, it is not speaking of the rapture of verse 1, but of the day of the Christ or the day of the Lord of verse 2. The day of Christ, meaning the tribulation period, will not come. We just established that based on Daniel 9, but also we know from what Paul said and what he will say. The tribulation period, the seven years given to Israel to do those six things, three negative, three positive, are given to Israel, not to the church, will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, I'm going to say something that will make a lot of people unhappy with me. That's okay. I'm not here to make people happy. It has become common to teach that this word, apostasia, or falling away, is actually speaking about the rapture because the word signifies leave or depart. However, and I disagree with them on this, However, it is an unnecessary stretch of the intent of Paul's words. We don't need, the reason why they do this is because they want to further justify a pre-tribulation rapture. We don't need to do that because Paul is clear enough. We don't need to take a word and make it say something that it is not saying. It is a stretch of the intent of Paul's words. The word is only used elsewhere in Acts 21 verse 21 when speaking of forsaking Moses. 
turning away from Moses. That's the only other time this word is used, meaning the law of Moses. The departure is one of purposeful turning away from sound doctrine. And that's what the intent was, and that's what Paul is speaking about here as well. He's speaking about the church falling away from doctrine, not being raptured about doctrine, okay? There will be a falling away from the truth. The truth, I better, I gotta make a correction here. I've got a word that is incorrect. All right, the true faith of Christ before the day of Christ comes. There will be a falling away. Everybody can agree with that if you look at the world today, right? Um, what is implied here is that the true church will be gone by then. But that will be explained in verse 7. It is not explained by the words apostasia of this verse. Along with this thought, Paul finishes the verse with, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, so he's said these things will happen, but the seven years of tribulation are not going to happen until these two events happen. The falling away and the man of sin being revealed. Now that's got to be further explained before we get there. We're not there yet. Okay, so don't get confused in your thoughts. And what I probably should do is just read everything together uh, one of these days as a, um, uh, you know, with the, why am I talking about the prophecy update? I do, like I say, I read the same thing every couple of years just so people get the timing right. But anyway, um, here Paul speaks of the man of sin. It is a term unique in the New Testament. It is applied to a specific person who will be a man of lawlessness, as the word anomia implies. A, negative, nomia, law. Okay, nomos. The word signifies the utter disregard for God's law, his written and living word. That's helps word studies definition. To further describe him, Paul calls him the son of perdition. This is a term used only one other time in the Bible. Anybody know who that is? Son of perdition. There's two times it's used. Judas. Judas. Very good. Two points for you today. In John 17, 12, we're speaking of Judas who betrayed Jesus. So you got two sons of perdition, all right? One of them is Judas, the second is the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist. Judas, in essence, fell away from the truth of the apostolic office, which otherwise could have been his, okay? Along with the other apostles. He chose the evil path and he was essentially born to be destroyed as is implied in the words of Matthew 26, 24. That doesn't mean that God created him to be destroyed. It means that God knew that he would do what he did. He would not turn back to the Lord. He would hang himself instead of doing that, and he cut himself off from any hope of restoration. What Peter did was no less than what Judas did. He betrayed the Lord too. He denied him, but he was restored, wasn't he? He went on to be an apostle of the Lord. So, I mean, you know, we can say, well, Judas was so bad that he did this. Well, you, know, you look at what Peter did, and it was no better. He stood right there on the, the night of uh, Christ's crucifixion, and he says, I will never deny you. And then he did it three times. That's right. So whatever. Um, uh, but G Judas, the reason why Judas is going to be destroyed is because he did not turn back to the Lord, because the grace and the mercy of the Lord is infinite. He would have even taken Judas back, but God knew he would, so he's the son of perdition. Anyway, like Judas, this person will be set on a course which can only lead to ruin. We got four minutes, so we got to go quick. The word Paul uses is translated as revealed as apocalypto. It will be as if a covering is pulled away and this person, bent on disregarding God's law, will be unveiled. He is then a counterfeit to Christ, and thus he is known as the 
Antichrist, thank you. Point for you. What we have so far is the understanding that the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord, because Christ is the Lord, will not actually commence until the Antichrist is revealed. Now that's important because we're going to see pretty soon that we're not going to know who the Antichrist is. Everybody got that? If we don't know who the Antichrist is, then why would we bother trying to figure out who the Antichrist is? My focus is Jesus, not that guy. Secondly, if we are not going to know who the Antichrist is, and he's not going to be revealed until after we're gone and before the seven years of tribulation, then that means that we are not going through one day of the tribulation. You see the sequence? Paul's got it written out, and we just have to follow what he's saying. Okay, and so thus far we see this sequence of events. One, rapture of the church. Two, the falling away and the revealing of the Antichrist. Three, the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord. How do we know that the Antichrist is going to be revealed first? Because he's the one that has the treaty signed with Israel. You can't sign a treaty if you aren't revealed as the person who's going to sign the treaty. Everybody see the logic? It's so simple if you take what Paul is saying and put it in proper order. This is syllogistic thinking, by the way. Um, life application. Actually, that wasn't a syllogism. Syllogism is this, this, therefore this. I just gave three points. Anyway, life application. It is common today among rapture deniers to state that the doctrine of the rapture was never taught until the time of John Darby. Have you heard this? John Darby is the one that initiated it. There's no such thing as dispensationalism. There's no such thing as a rapture. John Darby is then maligned in order to diminish his writings, which is a source fallacy. I talk about that all the time, a genetic fallacy. He's a bad guy, and therefore what he says cannot be true. That's a source fallacy. However, this is untrue. John Darby did not invent the doctrine of the rapture. Paul clearly teaches the doctrine in his letters. Therefore, Paul is the one that gave us the doctrine, not John Darby. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 2 Thessalonians 2. Just because Paul's words have been improperly understood because of a misinterpretation of the role of the church, it does not mean that the doctrine is unsound. Instead, it means that the church doctrine has simply not been in line with Scripture. That deficiency has been corrected. We got a couple minutes. Why would that be? Why would that doctrine have been misinterpreted for 2,000 years? Because Israel was not in the land, and God was punishing Israel, and the church, yeah, three points for you today. If everybody knew that there would be a rapture, but it was conditional on the return of the Jews to the land of Israel to again live in the land of Israel, what would every normal thinking Christian on the planet for the past 2,000 years have been doing? Nothing. They've been trying to get the Jews back into the land of Israel, which is exactly after the doctor of the rapture was reintroduced by John Darby and others around his time. It wasn't only Darby. What did people start doing? Christians. Supporting the return of Israel to Israel. That's what would have happened all those years. But something happened. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were dispersed. They're all over the world. A pocket of five here, a pocket of a thousand over there. They will never be back in the land. It's utterly waste. It is impossible. It will never happen. And so they come up with the doctrine of 
replacement theology. These promises belong to us. It has to be because it says it. And if that's not true, then this is not the word of God and we're following the wrong religion. And so they come up with, it's the blinders don't go just one way. The veil over the eyes of the Jews, it went both ways to meet God's sovereign purposes. So when people give you that fallacy about John Darby, don't listen to him. Paul was a dispensationalist and Paul was a rapture believer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. Thank you for the beauty of your word and the logic of the sequencing of it so that we don't have to argue if our apples are apples and our oranges are oranges. So help us to keep it that way, to take everything in its proper context and to understand what you are doing in human history. Because when Israel violated their law, you had to punish them. And it happened according to your word. And so, Lord, we pray for Israel today. They're back in the land, and we pray that their eyes will be opened. Many eyes will be opened before that terrible time comes upon that land and those people. Lord, we thank you for the promise, the sure hope that we possess in Jesus Christ and the rapture. Thank you for that, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, Back to saying, I know, I'm just, okay, break, break, break. Oh, we've just done it. Oh, can they hear us? No. Have a great night. Oh, yeah, they can? Okay, you can hear us. We love you. Take care. <laughs>